Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Roberta Katz, anthropologist at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. And she will discuss her book, Gen Z Explained, The Art of Living in a Digital Age. How do you build generational balance? It helps to understand the differences and specificities across different age cohorts. Much of this podcast to date has been focused on a better understanding of Q3 as a time of life and a cohort. But now I'd like to shift the focus to look at the other quarters if we seek to redesign work, love, and purpose across the full life stage, we'll need to understand them better. Today, we're taking a look at Q1, what's been called Generation Z, those born since the mid-1990s. Roberta Katz and her co-authors are a transatlantic and multidisciplinary group. They bring together an anthropologist, a linguist, a historian, and a sociologist to analyze a generation that has been much stereotyped and maligned. Their book, Gen Z Explained, offers a refreshingly nuanced and even optimistic look at a group of people who have much to teach all of us about how to collaborate and thrive in the digital age. So today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to Four Quarter Lives, Professor Roberta Katz, who's going to share with us her new book called Gen Z Explained, or Gen Z, depending on where in the world you're listening to us, The Art of Living in a Digital Age. But I'm going to start, perhaps, before we launch into the book, by getting a little bit of your own background, which is extraordinary, multi-phase. As you know, here at Four Quarter Lives, we're really interested in multiple careers and sequencing. So before we get to the book, which is relatively recent, is it your first one? No, I actually had an adventure in writing in past years. I wrote a little book, it was not widely distributed, about the impact of the information age on the civil justice system. What inspired me to do that, I had been a lawyer in private practice, and I realized that some of the distortions that we were seeing in the civil justice system, such as abuses of the discovery process and the abundance of jury consultants and so on, that those abuses were actually tied to the fact that there was so much more information coming into the system than had been the case before. And so I wanted to talk about how the abundance of information was affecting processes that had not been set up for that. And in fact, that research, just like everything that we do, it kind of builds on What's connected interconnects and leads us to our next. Yeah, that that research actually influenced my thinking when we got to talking about Gen Z, which we'll go into, I think, as we talk. I can see the links. Okay, now back to you. Give me a little bit of the scope of your life and career. Oh, my goodness. Well, as I call it, my checkered past, because it's had so many twists and turns. But what I've done is kind of follow where my interests led me and it has served me well. I started in college as a mathematician, but I shifted into anthropology when I realized that the world was a very interesting place. I had not traveled as a young person and I hadn't traveled till I was in college and it just opened my eyes to the complexity of the world. 
And so I, I changed my major to anthropology, uh, thanks to the good graces of one of my advisors at college. I ended up in graduate school. I got my PhD in anthropology, had a child. And as I was interviewing for teaching jobs, realized that I wasn't sure I wanted to teach. Seems like it was a late realization, but after I'd done the PhD. That's the trouble with careers. You often have to go quite a ways in to realize something's not quite right for you. Well, and Aviva, what was interesting about this is I I then, I read the book, What Colors Your Parachute, which helps a person find interest. It it directed me into law or law and business. So I chose the law route because it seemed like it would give more options. And it was as I was practicing law a few years in, after I had my sea legs, oh, that I realized, isn't it? I mean, you're looking for patterns. This is well, what I realized. Apologist and then lawyer. And what I realized is that my skill as a lawyer was very much founded on what I had learned as an anthropologist, because I was a business lawyer, and my job was to bring people together to figure out where they were going to be in agreement or not, and it was really about cross-cultural communication. My career ultimately led me into two high-tech businesses, the first being the cellular business where I was a general counsel. And the second then was the internet business where I went to work as the general counsel of Netscape, which was the first big browser company that kind of helped the world open up to the internet. And my area of expertise as an anthropologist had been social change. It was once I got to Netscape and realized as I was being asked to talk about law that did not yet exist, there was no law in 1995 about how the internet was going to work, that my comfort in giving advice came from the fact that I had an understanding of social change. Right. So it, it looked like it was a very windy road, but in fact, it was one continuous road. And it makes you so uniquely positioned through all of those to try and understand the next generation coming up and there, the impact of tech and social change on them. I, I have a lot of curiosity and uh, so <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's what's kind of the, the driving theme. Absolutely. Driving theme, well, and it connects to every generation. I think that's probably the motor that uh, the baton that we definitely are handing on from one generation to another. So. Curiosity probably also led you to your co-authors. It's unusual yes. to have four people co-author a book and, and a wonderful combination of an anthropologist, a linguist, a sociologist, and historian. How did you find each other? And what was the spark that got this project going? Yes, we, we were friends. Jane and Sarah and I had become friends at Stanford. They were teaching there. I was working in the president's office. And, and some of them are British and some of them are American. Jane is British. Linda is British. And Sarah was raised in Australia, but has spent a lot of time in England as well. But Jane and Sarah were working at Stanford. Jane was the dean for religious life, as well as a historian. And then Sarah was a linguist. And their friend Linda had come over from England to have a mini sabbatical we were all having dinner one night and we started sharing stories about these behaviors that we were seeing in the freshmen and sophomores that seemed unusual to us. Uh, I have to say we started out being somewhat critical. Our anecdotes were all about, can you believe they did this? And then as the conversation progressed, we said, you know, the four of us 
we all are curious about these young people. Maybe we ought to bring our different methodologies to bear and try to try to study them. And so thanks to the help of a woman that runs the Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, who was very keen on this project and immediately went out and found the Knight Foundation, who gave us a big grant to do it. We were off and running. Okay. And you know, it's kind of be careful what you wish for, because we we then had to figure out how we were going to do this study. So in the course of the writing the book, you said you went from this initially kind of critical, uh, cynical, over dinner, comparing horror stories to actually admiring this generation. Can you just summarize before we launch into all the differences that we'll look at? What what was that arc? You know, it was interesting. Before we actually started the study, we convened a focus group of young people because we wanted to make sure that they would be willing to talk about the kinds of things we wanted to ask about their daily lives, their values. Let's define young. These were college students. Under 18, we were going to need parental consent. And so we had, we were on college campuses. We knew we had in front of us 18 and older. This was the group that was at the leading edge of Gen Z. Uh, Gen Z is defined usually as, uh, you'll see different beginning dates, but it's generally around the middle of the 1990s. So these were the students we were encountering. So we, we gathered them around a table. We had a lunch and started asking them questions. And listening to them, they said things that were so surprising to us that it it really wet our appetites to continue the the study. One of the Things that surprised us most from that lunch was when we asked them about the values of their generation. One young man raised his hand and very vigorously said, well, I know what our top value is. It's flexibility. And the four of us were kind of surprised. That was not a value that we had thought about. And and all the other heads around the table started nodding in agreement. And we said, what is it? Why, why flexibility? And he said, All of our lives have been about change. We expect change to continue to happen. I know I'm going to need to have lots of different jobs. So I have to stay flexible so that I can keep up. Mm -hmm. And it it turned out that was very right, what he was saying in terms of the shared value of his generation. But it also opened our eyes from the very beginning to what these young people had been dealing with. Yeah, totally different economic structure, gig. I mean, it makes you think of the gig economy that they've been watching, the gig. Everything, everything. We can get into that. But they their world has been a world of in change and of change. So let's scope that out a little bit. The new and the context, you're talking about a historic shift that for the first time ever in human history, really, there are 8 billion people connected. That yes. creates a lot of newness. What's the impact and what are they facing? How do you introduce the shift? Well, you just hit on some very key points, Aviva. The internet is the first time that we have had the ability for potentially 8 billion people to communicate with one another all at once. What we tend to forget is that the internet is a communications network. And when you think about the human experience, it's absolutely about communications. Everything we do almost involves some form of communication with other humans. And so the fact that we have this 
massively powerful way of connecting with each other that can hold so much information is what makes this historically meaningful. And I want to make a point that I will come back to over and over again in this conversation, which is what the internet has done is given us unprecedented scope, scale, and speed in our lives. What do I mean by that? The speed point is obvious. Everything can happen very, very, very quickly. The scope and the scale, the amount of information that can be put through this network is unprecedented for a a human to be able to access this much information. It's 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 overwhelming, right? Which is why we're all right. It's stunning. And then scope, if you think about the breadth of what can come in, what we can get exposure to as humans, it's stunning. It's stunning. It's unprecedented and it's stunning. And for these young people, these are young people that were born around the time that the internet became a reality. The world that they know is a world that is connected at this scope, scale, and speed. So the rest of us, depending on how old we are, you know, it's either come, it depends on when all of this has had to be integrated into our lives. If we were born before the internet, we have a foundation that is differently the internet understanding of the world. But for them, it's all about the internet and what the internet has brought us. So one of the things that you're suggesting has been the impact, and there are many, but what I found particularly interesting was their attitude to hierarchy and their yes. complete lack of respect for hierarchy. Like you have to prove what your worth is, not by your position, but by your worth or your contribution, which includes, as I understand it, the de-hierarchization, difficult word to say, of family itself, that the family structure is democratizing. Can you, what's all that about? Tell us. Oh my gosh, there's a lot in that question. So let me start with the hierarchy point. It's a product of the fact that these young people have been able to go to the internet to find all kinds of information that in the past might have come from elders. I, I want to read you a quote. The, as our, our book is full of quotes from our interviews that we did with young people. And this one says so much about the hierarchy point. It, this was from one of the young men that we interviewed in Britain, on one of the campuses in Britain. He says, when my grandma was 10 years old, you weren't allowed to question the authority or you get a slap. You go to church, you pray, you do what your parents say. Whereas nowadays, if you're 10, the internet can maybe make you question things. You don't need your mom there. You can look at information. So it's not like they don't want information or that they are very dismissive of what someone older would say, but they care a lot about the relevance. They've had to be very good at sorting through. Check their mom, right? Yeah, they fact check everything because they've been very good at sorting. They've had to become very good at sorting through the abundance of information that they have exposure to. And then if you think about all the things that we do on the Internet collaboratively, think about Wikipedia. It's a collaborative effort. Think about these, quote unquote, fandoms. They're collaborative efforts. Think about social media and there's not a boss 
usually in a social media group, there might be a moderator, but that's not a boss. So they have grown up working with each other, solving problems together. And so they are comfortable. Google Docs is all about collaborative creation. They're very comfortable doing that. So when someone comes in and says, here's a very rigid hierarchical structure and and they say, well, why? What's the purpose for that structure? If there's a good purpose, they're fine with it. But if not, they're going to question it. Before we get into the family, I just want to go back yeah. to the hierarchy, because I assume that this is going to be one of the big friction points in companies, which are still pretty hierarchical for many. Yes. I've been talking to a lot of companies because this is one of the the things that's happening where the people who've been in the company for a while are, wait, how come these young people aren't just towing the line and, you know, kind of doing what we did, which is time. Yeah. Yeah. And what I say to them is explain why you have the structure, if it is in fact useful and they'll be fine. But if in fact the structure is not useful, if it's just convention, then you really ought to ask yourself, why do we have this? Is it, in fact, the most effective way to get the work done? So in the family, the added factor was that as all of us have been living through this massive amount of change since the mid-90s, I mean, if you think about it, at the beginning of the internet, the notion that we would be buying and selling everything online or that we would be doing online banking or that we would be even having a conversation like this Zoom conversation was so foreign. Talking to our doctors. Healthcare, exactly. It was so foreign. And all of this has happened within the last 30 years, less than 30 years. The internet basically became accessible in 95. So the family is trying to, parents are trying to deal with all this change too. And how many of us turn to our children to say, oh, help me with this phone, help me with this VCR, help me with, and then on and on and on. So the parents were turning to the children for advice on matters of technology, in addition to which it became harder for a parent to advise a child about what the future would look like. When I was growing up, my parents could more or less feel comfortable predicting what my life was going to be. Obviously, things happened that were not known to them, but the fact that we would be Going through our daily lives in front of a screen, like we do, the parents didn't really know how to advise the but, kids. Yeah, it's interesting then. You're, it's actually like a redefining of the role of parenthood. So what, yes. I'm sure you've thought about this. What, what is the role of parenting in an age of sort of re- mutual mentoring in different areas? I think the role of parent is still very much a role of communicating values and offering guidance, and some structure. The difference is, I think, in the old days when it was my way or the highway, you know, that was the way parents were expecting their children. You you do it because I said so. I think there is more room for conversation because we are all going through so much change. So a parent might say, this is why I now, you don't have to explain everything, obviously. We, we are still parents and grandparents. But I think we need to be more aware that the world they are experiencing as young people is not at all the same as the world we experienced as young people. So we can't immediately analogize to our own 
early years in telling them what to do, what to expect, how to be. An interesting challenge for the for the older group, right, is to basically you're suggesting a lot of humility that we really, really don't know, accepting what we don't know. Change is never easy. There's such a, a sort of small segment of the population that embraces change happily and says, yeah, let me have at it. Change is hard. And we're all going through a huge amount of change with the backdrop always being unprecedented scope scale and speed. Okay, I'm going to memorize the scope, scale and speed. So let's let's turn to the to the scientific disruptor technology that's changed all this and maybe maybe let's start on the the physical impacts of this arrival. What's it doing to our brains? The it being the technology and the internet. I mean, is yeah. there the yeah, there, the time that this generation, I assume it's linked to the amount of time that this generation has been directly involved in interacting with technology from almost birth for yes. <laughs> seeing too many babies on iPads. What do you think of that? Yeah, right. Is that a good yeah. thing or is it really rewiring their neurological path? I think the jury is still out. There are a lot of researchers that are looking at this question for all of us. Distractibility. You know, the, the amount of time that someone is on any one screen is very short. It's a matter of seconds if you just look across the, and this is not just young people, it's all of us. The need for constant input is greater. Our book talks a little bit about this question of deep thinking and whether we are compromising our ability to do deep thinking. As I say, there are people studying this very topic. And I think probably the same was said when the printing press came into being and when television came into being or radio came into being, there were new places for us to put our attention. So I don't know whether this is part of a continuum of change or not. And of course, right now I am at, at Stanford working together with the researchers on artificial intelligence. We're about to see a whole new era of massive change because of the increasing capability of artificial intelligence and robotics. Yep. So it, we have been on this very fast rocket ship. So as, as you know, the, the fast rocket ship is also sowing a lot of anxieties, particularly around this issue of mental health, yes. anxiety disorders, uh, intergenerational conflict that's being mediatized quite a bit. I know you have a slightly different view on this. Could you share and perhaps calm our nerves? <laughs> I don't know if I can calm the nerves, but the, the mental health piece is worrisome. But I I want to underscore that it is not just young people who are having mental health issues. The opioid epidemic was not young people. The number of, of suicides and of the demand for mental health counseling help yeah. is not just young people. We are very aware of it with young people for a couple of reasons. One, the college campuses have been set up for a long time to have not just physical health, but mental health addressed. 
So the campuses are more aware of it. Two, this is a generation that was raised to speak freely about mental health. Ritalin was prescribed. People talked about ADHD, OCD, and so on from the time these were young, young people. And then on social media, it became... They, they talk about everything on social media, as do many of us older people. When we go into a, a social media room and people talk about all kinds of things. Well, young people have been comfortable talking about mental health. And so we are well aware of it with young people. But it is this amount of change that we are all trying to deal with, not to mention the pandemic, which, of course, put everything on steroids. It is very hard what we are going through. I like to analogize it to what we read about in our history books about the remember the Industrial Revolution. And we read about how hard it was in Britain as people had to move from rural settings into the cities uh, because of manufacturing jobs and and how hard it was on them. That was the beginning of all kinds of new things like public schools, like trials by jury. This is the link to my prior research. Lots of change happened during the Industrial Revolution. Well, I would argue we're going through even more dramatic change with this digital revolution. And so it is hard on us. In a time of war, climate annihilation that they've been taught since grade school. I mean, I was amazed what my young children came home with about what was coming. Exactly. I mean, I'm a baby boomer. I think when I think back to my youth, my frame of reference was my family, my school, you know, the religious organizations, the newspaper, the radio, the television. That did not bring to me the vast amount of exposure that these young people get from the time they are very young, before they actually even know how to process all of what they're seeing. So we were discussing briefly before we got on Jonathan Haidt's focus on this topic and his particular conviction that girls are suffering more than boys. There's a a gender disaggregation that he's been looking into and you said there was somebody else arguing the other end of the spectrum that I'm not familiar with. Can you give us a bit? Yeah, of- there's been a big debate among social psychologists about whether social media is the yeah. cause of mental health issues, especially depression and anxiety. Yeah. And the two camps have been arguing very vociferously with each other. One saying there's not causation. The other saying there might be some correlation, but it's it's not significant. I think what both camps would agree is that social media can be damaging, can be harmful. I guess harmful is a better word than damaging. And that we want to be alert to the amount of time and the type of time spent with social media. Some of this question about girls came out of this recent study that the CDC did, and that predated the pandemic. I was listening to someone else, actually a psychologist, commenting on that study. And she made the very good point that some of the gender difference may be due to the fact that when girls are upset, they will talk about their feelings. And when boys are upset, they may internalize and act out. 
So for this person, it was not surprising that girls were more willing to say they were depressed than boys who would deem it not to be manly to say they were depressed, but who in fact had a lot of rage. I don't know. And who commit suicide in far greater numbers than the girls. It, well, and suicide is there across the board. And yes, and, and you know, more of the violence we see is coming from boys. The I think the jury is still out, but I there are groups now that are doing a very good job of educating parents about how to acknowledge social media and that social media can be a good thing when used, just like we might say about television. Anything else. Or gaming. Gaming is, we haven't been talking about gaming. The boys are very much into gaming. I guess my my point of view is that it's very complex. And it is all related to this massive amount of change that is coming at us so fast that our ability to deal with it has not yet settled. It's going to take us a while to understand how to tame the technology, but we won't get there by being afraid of it. We but I assume there's a degree of moderation that's needed in all these things, which is exactly. never, never easy in teenagers. But I, I agree. It, well, it's a tool. The technology is a tool, and we need to we need to, as we do with all tools, there. You know, a bandsaw is dangerous. We learn how to deal with dangerous tools. It's just been happening so fast that we haven't had time to work it out yet. So let's move to another. After tech, I wanted to talk about another subject you bring up fascinatingly, which is time and the quality of time. And partly what we're talking about is these kids are like 24-7. Social media never shuts down. They're on their phones all the time. It wakes them up. And, and you, were, you were recounting how some of the students at Stanford or in your research were watching lectures online in triple time. Right. Can you explain how does that help them? Or is it just a sort of dangerous attention acceleration? Well, I don't know if it's dangerous. It may be, going back to your question about are their brains changing, yep. that they process at a faster speed. If you think about how much they learn to process from the time they're little, when their brains are very much in formation, relative to what we, the amount of information we were processing as older people when we were growing up, it may be that their brains move more quickly. I don't know. But part of the reason they say they would listen to the lecture in triple time is that it kept them more alert. They had to pay attention. Uh, They didn't let their minds wander. They had to pay attention as they were listening closely. So they actually, so what you're saying in the book is they actually prefer not going to classes in live, but being able to listen faster because for them it was probably too slow. So you notice this now when you watch ads or movies, they tend to go at hyper speed. Exactly. I think with movies, the, the frames move more quickly than they used to. With ads, we've definitely seen it. So it's, it's affecting not just these young people, but all of us that everything is has been speeding up. So you've also pointed to that they are already getting much wiser than we are and that they already know that where they spend their time and where they put their attention is actually currency. It's a value that's going to be yes. monetized, something that we have been discovering with some horror. I mean, there are older people writing books about how yes. this terrible. But if they know it and they grew up that way, I assume they are going to learn how to spend that currency with 
more. Yes, they, they are aware that when they are online, someone is profiting from that often. So they are careful about where they do put their attention. They, they have a certain, it's a very pragmatic generation, which is surprising until you get to know them. And then you see how pragmatic they are. They've had to be because they have had to learn they, to process everything coming at them. And they've also, because they've been online from such an early age, they've seen a lot of, of hype of false advertising, of of scandals. You know, they've seen institutions kind of falling apart around them. And so they've learned to be a little bit uh, dubious and, and a little bit cynical because they they are young and they see this world in front of them that needs a lot of attention and repair. Yeah. And they they recognize it's on their shoulders. So, yeah, I mean, this whole notion of of time is absolutely astonishing to read that whole chapter around this concept. And and it kept occurring to me that this is just the first Internet real generation. So if they've learned that fast already, how they are being used and in what system they're evolving, imagine what, you know, we can hope that the next ones will pick up. Yes. Well, and it's not just speed. If you think about it, when I was growing up, nine to five or nine to six was there, were, there was a kind of set day. You had your breakfast and then you went to school or work and then you had your lunch and then you had your afternoon of school and work and then you came home and you had dinner. I'm, I'm kind of summarizing here. And then after dinner, you had homework, but you had some relaxation and so on and so forth. And then you went to bed. Well, nowadays we work, it could be, you and I are sitting here talking, you are nine hours ahead of me. We're, so it's as if we're in the t- same time zone, but we're not. Yep, yep. And companies are using that very yeah. effectively. Yeah. People are working, you know, they're working around the clock because we're in communication all over the globe. So, which brings me to another chapter of yours. I, I, I must say, I was reading through this with my jaw slightly dropping half the time. But just as they are crafting entirely new kind of pathways through the day, through time, you're also saying that they're crafting entirely new identities that are highly individualized and personalized. So, and, and you talk about how they're unbundling and remixing with an imperative to self-define can you help us dig around? What's the what's the new scope and new vocabulary? Because I understand we got to keep up with. Oh yes, well, so in the book, new existences and identities. It, you'll see uh, for those who read the book, it's got a lot about some of these new words. One of the ways we studied, we had four ways that we studied young people. One was through interviews. One was through some broad random samples. One was through a linguistic analysis. We have a what they call a corpus of 70 million words that are used by this age group. And then we uh, applied a historical analysis to what we were seeing. But when it came to the identity piece, some of the words were, were stunning to us. And what we came to understand is that because when they are growing up, they have exposure to potentially 8 billion people. And so all those different ways of living, in contrast to when we were growing up, where your exposure was, as I said, to a very 
you know, your family, your maybe your town, um, but certainly not to few uh, hundred, a few hundred rather than a few billion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so as young people do when they are growing up and trying to understand who they are, it became easier for them to uh, to find a, a great variety of potential role models and to say, oh, that that seems like me or, oh, that that seems like me. And to find community online of people who shared one attribute or another. And so when we asked young people in the interviews what they thought was the biggest difference between them and their parents, they immediately went to the identity issue and their tolerance, the young people's tolerance for people to try on different identities and to keep trying them on. A young person might show up one day and say, I'm trying on this identity. And then a week later, come back and say, no, that really isn't me. They have a great tolerance for that fluidity. And it goes back to the original comment I made about flexibility and flexibility. So those of us who are older, especially when it comes to the gender point, struggle. You know, we've gotten as a, as a society more accepting of people who change religion for themselves or change other attributes. The gender one is yet one more identity attribute that for those of us who are older, this is harder. Yep. But for them, it's just one attribute of identity, just like one's ethnicity, one's religion, one's work. They see that there are many ways to be as a human. We got to get in a little bit into this and then we'll move on. But just the gender fluidity concept, which is confounding. I agree. I can hear it all around me and companies and everybody going, what, yes. how to manage this topic. But I also found it interesting, the difference between, you know, yeah, being super tolerant to all of these new things, everybody using pronouns, you know, this, this kind of projection of uber tolerance to everything. And yet your stats, when you ask people how they identify themselves, still sound fairly traditional, no? Yeah, I think the difference is that there is tolerance for someone who doesn't want to do it in a traditional way. So there's 90% of people who still identify as what they cisgender, which is the, the sex with which you were born or the gender yeah. with which you were born. They, it's the majority that you say has evolved to become far more tolerant of a minority. Of, that that's has, right. It just as society as a whole, for example, has become more tolerant of some things that we did not, you know, that we didn't tolerate before. And again, I'm generalizing here, but we, we have definitely seen a growing tolerance for diversity yep. that was not there before. Yep. And they are at the I guess you could say at the leading edge. But I, I think back to the 1980s when I was raising kids. And uh, do you remember there was something called Free to Be You and Me? Yeah. Wasn't that Sesame Street? Wasn't that a song? <laughs> yes. So, so this is not new to this generation. It has been happening. Well, yeah, I mean, we still remember the sexual liberation, which was the beginning of exactly opening of doors and windows. But I think what you're pointing to, I find very interesting because it's not just that people can go and be anything. It's that the dominant majority is just becoming more inclusive. They're just becoming more able to let whatever margins, whatever groups there are that right. may not align with their own lifestyles. And, and Aviva, I, just as I've been talking about for Gen Z, getting exposure to more ways of being 
online, we are all getting exposure to more ways of living. And, you know, if you're, if you are talking in a, in a social media group with someone who lives in a very different culture from your own, and you're getting to know that person, that's an exposure that we wouldn't have had locally. Most people. Or, or, or it's, it's more likely to happen than it would have locally. So exposure, you know, allows people to see the humanity in each other. So that's that's inspiring. So tolerance, flexibility. Give me your take on OK Boomer. Okay, <laughs> OK Boomer. This the myth of the intergenerational conflict. Yeah. Does OK it Boomer not exist? OK Boomer came up. It's related to what I've been talking about, which is to say, when those of us who are older would purport to say to one of these young people, "You are doing it wrong." Trust me, I'm older, I've seen more. From a young person's perspective, they are saying, yes, but the world is not what it was when you were young. So you need to also look at the world as it is today, as I'm experiencing it, before you tell me what to do. The OK Boomer roll of the eyes from young people was, look, I'm not going to argue with you. The world is very different. It's not worth my arguing with you. And by the way, older people, climate change is something you've known about for a long time and didn't fix. Some of these social injustice issues you've known about for a long time and didn't fix. School shootings are not something that our generation created and you all haven't fixed it. So before you are so quick to tell us what to do, recognize that you've left us with a big mess that we have no choice but to try to address because this is our whole life in front of us. And so it's really more about, I'm not going to argue with you because there's no point. <laughs> it's just like, so okay. Arguing that this kind of conflict does actually exist. There's a certain degree of perhaps tolerant condescension from Gen Z to their elders, but I, I was just questioning the actual. Con- I, I mean, I know. I don't think it's conflict. I think. I think if they wanted conflict, they would be arguing. <laughs> um, right. But instead, they're just acknowledging and saying that they're they're all actually the OK Boomer thing is kind of like I'm going to try to understand that you really don't understand what my life is like. And I haven't heard the OK Boomer comment as much. It's calmed down. Actually. It's interesting because they are they are close to parents and grandparents in in some ways closer than than we were Absolutely. growing up. Yeah, I mean that's certainly the impression of I have around me is I on the contrary see people who share music and hobbies and exactly. you know concert going um, and affection they have great affection. They have a lot of tolerance for grandparents and with parents I think it's more it is more this democratization point yep. that you and that other social scientists are talking about. So I think that's a, a good tip for our listener parents to remember that the family has de-hierarchicized. <laughs> there are some very good books out there about the phenomenon. So in conclusion, having written this book, are you optimistic for them, for us, for us together? I am. I like these young people. They are pragmatic. They don't know how to rebuild institutions that reflect these values they have of greater tolerance and desire for inclusivity and so on. 
it's very hard. Humans haven't figured this out yet about how to actually do well integrating our differences. I think they start out ahead of where we older people are. And they have to tame these increasingly powerful tools. These communication tools are so powerful. They have the ability to bring together our common human wisdom and and skill sets if we know how to use the tools well. And the challenges that we face, these systemic challenges that humanity as a whole is facing now, need our collective wisdom and skill sets. I am hopeful that they will do a good job of helping us tame the tools to use them for the betterment of humanity. And they are very much about wanting to protect their own humanity and the humanity of others. They, One of the things I cite a lot is when we asked in our interviews of over 100 of these young people what their favorite form of communication was, almost to a one, they said face-to-face, in person. Wow. They had various explanations for why, but they are very much... If you read the book, you'll see throughout, they care about the human experience. This whole thing, they get teased a lot about safe spaces and so on. It's all about protecting the human experience in the face of a lot of digital tools. Final question in closing, any advice for those of us over 50 who are listening and how should we mirror their tolerance and inclusivity? How do we get better? What do we need to learn? I mean, the bottom line of the book is just to be aware. It is cross-cultural. These different generations have grown up in different cultures. And just as we would meeting someone from another part of the world who comes from a different culture, we would want to understand their culture and where they're coming from, not assume that they are just like we are. But in fact, have a respect for them and where they come from and to try to find those points of common humanity to then interact. It's the same thing. They, these are, it is cross-cultural communication. And so my hope is that it can be done respectfully and with a sense of curiosity and a sense of open-heartedness. That's lovely. It's like a, a, a multilingualism across generations. Yes. That sounds like a beautiful way to end. (laughs) Thank you so much for all this research and this extraordinary kind of multi-perspective door opening into, yeah, an entirely different culture. Thank you, Aviven. Thank you for being interested. (laughs) I got to try and learn. Listen, I got to talk to my kids and my grandkids, even more challenging, right? (laughs) If we want to still be able to communicate, we better get started learning. Actually, they they will be probably quite willing. They are pretty social as a group. Start by reading Gen Z Explained, The Art of Living in a Digital Age by Roberta Katz, Sarah Ogilvie, Jane Shaw, and Linda Woodhead. You'll find all the links and how to buy it in the show notes. Roberta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aviva. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.